Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garden. It's Thursday, April 14th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. A super spreader event in the capital city, a reimposed mask mandate in Philadelphia. What do these mean for living with COVID-19? Dr. Lena Wen joins us to discuss it. For that, we'll start with the discussion of the biggest news of the week in biopharma. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley from STAT. On the heels of the 2022 American Academy of Neurology Annual Meeting, or AAN, I'm here with Gregory Rippon, Vice President and Chief Medical Partner at Genentech. Greg, why does neuroscience research require an incredible amount of persistence? Thanks, Angus. Conditions of the nervous system are historically some of the most complex and difficult to understand and treat. We've made great strides over the past few decades, but it's been a challenging journey. We've gained scientific insights around biomarkers, dosing approaches, and clinical trial design that are helping us understand how to potentially effectively treat neurological conditions. We continue to learn more about when, in whom, and for how long to intervene, and how to measure therapeutic effects on cognition, function, and biomarkers at various points in the disease continuum. Importantly, we have doubled down, building on our experience across neurologic disorders to inform what's next. To learn more about our research efforts, visit gene.com forward slash neuroscience. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash neuroscience. So this isn't biotech news per se, but it is big news that happened Thursday morning just before we started recording this podcast, and it does affect us. Elon Musk has offered to buy Twitter, like all of Twitter. What do you guys think? You know, I don't know whether this deal is going to actually happen. Like you said, Meg, he has offered to buy all of Twitter. I think it was like $54 a share. I forget what the premium was over the existing stock price or the closing stock price. 38%, he says, over where he invested in it. Right. So, you know, I guess the big question is, is this kind of like a form of green mail? You know, obviously he had taken a big stake. He considered a a spot on the board. uh, And then he turned that down for whatever reason. And now this. Um, But you're right. I mean, it it affects us and it affects everyone who sort of uses Twitter uh, as... Uh, you know, as a communication tool, social media. Obviously, for us, it's a big part of uh, the way we do our job, uh, and um, has implications for all those things. I, I, to me, right now, it seems like a kind of a spectacle, and I don't know if this is actually going to happen. Yeah, it, I mean, it's. I feel like I, I've had the same thought for now, going on a decade, which is the how seriously does one take Elon Musk as just like a figure in our society. It's like the seriously, not literally doctrine um, that people used to apply to Donald Trump. I recall when he claimed to have secured funding from, I don't know, the Saudi royal family to take Tesla private and stock prices moved around. And then that turned out to be, I guess, just a joke. And so like his concept of what is a gag online versus what is a serious move of capitalism is, is always very confusing. And then it's also you know, hyper relevant because he is, I think, at least on paper, the richest man in the world and probably the history of the world. Um, And so we're just left that there's like this guy who loves memes and trolling 
um, and and as a result makes things that are conceivably jokes, but then also, you know, is the richest man in the world. So we have to take those jokes seriously. And, you know, just as of this morning, Thursday morning, it feels equally probable that come next week, he will take this back and we'll all sometime later be like, remember that time Elon Musk said he was going to buy Twitter? <laughs> or it's real. And and this, this, you know, social media company that objectively isn't that relevant, but as you guys mentioned, is actually deeply integral to how we do our jobs and to how a lot of people in media and on Wall Street do their jobs um, could fundamentally change because this very strange man wants to buy it. I really don't know. Yeah. And just to kind of button up the conversation, then we can move on to actual biotech things. But like, you know, he's talked about wanting to increase freedom of speech and things like that. You just have to wonder, like, if Elon Musk buys this thing and takes it private, does it become 4chan? And then like, we all have to go somewhere else. And it does open up an opportunity for some other forum. Because I think what what we would really miss is like, I have benefited so tremendously during the pandemic from just getting to see instantaneous analysis and data from, you know, verified virologists and epidemiologists and other scientists. That is so invaluable. I mean, we follow up, we do things off of Twitter, obviously, it is not our sole outlet for reporting, but like, it's such a great just depot of information. Um, It would be bad if it went away or changed into something that was less usable. Elon Musk appoints Donald Trump CEO of Twitter. And on that note, let's move on to more biotechy things. Uh, Meg, tell us a little bit about this uh, Pfizer BioNTech, uh, the booster update for COVID vaccine for uh, for kids five to eleven. Yeah, well, when I got the press release, I was hoping it was going to be for kids under five because <laughs> we are waiting with bated breath for the third dose data for young children who do not yet have access to any vaccine for COVID. Uh, so what we got today was the third dose results in a press release form uh, for kids five to 11 uh, and essentially showed what you would expect to see, that antibody levels increase with a third dose. Pfizer said it's going to file with the FDA within days, and this could make a third dose available to kids in this age group. And we've seen data that has suggested uh, they likely do need a third dose, just like everybody else, particularly in this era of Omicron. So we'll see how that proceeds. And of course, parents with kids under five will be continuing to wait with bated breath for the under five data. Damien, we've got a new uh, Editas Medicine CEO announced this morning. Uh, What do you know? (laughs) Right. So it's Gilmore O'Neill, who I associate most strongly with Sarepta. Uh, although he was previously at Biogen, but is like a, a known quantity in, in the biotech executive class. I think what what's interesting is kind of looking at Editas as this outlier in the cadre of CRISPR companies in that they've had kind of a messy run of form since going public. You know, CRISPR Therapeutics and Intellia Therapeutics being their um, sort of immediate peers. We have now have Beam Therapeutics and a few other kind of next generation CRISPR companies, but Editas has had a litany of executives pass through there, um, which is is interesting. I mean, they had yeah, Gil- they, Gilmore, they is focused, their, Gilmore is their fourth CEO since founding. Yeah, in a short period of time. Yeah, it's and you know and, and they they're, they focused on the eye, which which makes sense, I think, for for a company doing CRISPR because the eye is sort of its own little ecosystem. Um, in the body, but there was, you know, slightly disappointing data. There was some confusing communication. Uh, Adam, I think you were uh, on the business end of that. It's just, it's just Editas. I, I don't know. I, I guess I would say it seems like Gilmore O'Neill has his work cut out for him. Gilmore's job is just to write the ship over there. Like, like you mentioned, Damien, you know, uh, they're, they're most, you know, the peers that they're sort of most associated with in the genome editing world, you know, is our CRISPR therapeutics and Intellia. 
and and both those companies have moved along pretty well and have you know both from a sort of science clinical side and from even from the stock perspective have all done relatively well where Editas has kind of lagged. I mean, I joked on Twitter that you know they've got they've had more CEOs than clinical data, and it's kind of <laughs> not a joke. I mean, they really have not done very much. Their programs have been delayed. They haven't really uh, advanced a lot of things, and so I think Gilmore has to get in there and kind of figure out what's what and and start moving things a little bit quicker. It's kind of interesting. I mean, not that it really matters, but zooming out from the business and just looking at the eternal patent dispute, Editas is actually seems to be the victor or on the side of the victors um, of the patent dispute, which may or may not have any relevance to their actual clinical thing. So, But meanwhile, as they are kind of stumbling around corporately, they at least have the law on their side. And as you also pointed out on Twitter this morning, Adam, uh, Jim Mullen is... Uh, the one that Gilmore O'Neill is replacing as Editas CEO. Uh, Jim Mullen, of course, was a previous CEO of Biogen, and you were joking that perhaps he'll return to Biogen. Speaking of Biogen, <laughs> <laughs> last topic of Chatty Cathy, uh, which we're trying to keep short because we've got a really great long interview coming up, um, but is Biogen's uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services decision was finalized. It's not just Biogen. It's all of these drugs in the same class for Alzheimer's disease. Um, what happened last week? So last week, Medicare finalized its proposed rule to very strictly deal with Adjuhelm when it comes to reimbursement. There were a few changes from the proposal that we saw in January, but basically, and this is no surprise, I don't think, um, they reaffirmed their skepticism of this drug and their demand for more clinical data before um, taking a, a kinder view of it when it comes to actually paying for it. So... This is, I mean, I guess this is what we'd all prepared for. I don't think anyone is shocked. It means basically that Adjuhelm will remain in this commercial holding pattern that we've become familiar with where it's just not that widely used and it's not terribly lucrative. And Biogen, which has already announced cuts to its business in order to deal with the disappointing sales, will just have to live under that. One thing that I think is interesting, as as our colleague Nicholas Florco um, reported earlier this week, there are potentially legal avenues available to both Biogen, but also Eli Lilly and Roche and other companies that are um, kind of covered under the umbrella of this policy as it relates to amyloid dealing therapies. And that will be interesting to see going forward. They could sue, they could challenge Medicare's authority, they could try to get the rule rescinded. But I guess, I mean, the, the, the main takeaway, though, is that things are as we expected they would be. Yeah. And I would say circle uh, on your calendar the first week of May, because that's when Biogen reports its first quarter earnings. And I think we will hear from the company about sort of what they're going to do. Yeah, that'll be interesting, because the last time we heard from Biogen, CEO Michelle Venazos took a sort of righteous indignation approach to what CMS had done, which felt a little more theatrical than efficacious as far as public statements go. So I wonder if, if when next we hear from them, we'll get kind of the more sober... Uh, the more sober biogen. When at least 80 out of about 600 people who attended the swanky Gridiron Club dinner in D.C. a couple weeks ago got COVID, critics called the event, which was attended by Dr. Anthony Fauci and CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky, irresponsible and an example of why we can't just go back to normal. Dr. Alina Wen had a different take 
writing in the Washington Post that the Gridiron Club outbreak shows what living with COVID-19 looks like. It was a take many agree with, but which infuriated at least a subset of the public health world. Dr. Wen is an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University and was previously Baltimore's health commissioner. She's a CNN medical analyst, contributing columnist to the Washington Post, and author of the book Lifelines, A Doctor's Journey in the Fight for Public Health. And she joins us now. Dr. Wen, welcome to The Read Out Loud. Thank you so much. Glad to join you today. So maybe let's start with that gridiron dinner. Um, Obviously, as we mentioned, quite a few people got infected, but your take was largely that that's maybe not that's okay, but that these kinds of events should still go on despite some of the lingering risks. Why do you think that? Well, I think one thing that has not been mentioned so much with the gridiron dinner is that as of now, as far as I know, no one has been hospitalized, no one has become severely ill. And actually, when we were talking about what success and living with COVID looks like when vaccines first started coming out, that was what it looked like. It looked like people still getting infected, but not getting severely ill, not straining our healthcare system and us living with this disease. And I think one more thing to add on top of this is that we are now dealing with an even more contagious variant. I mean, we keep on talking about this new variant being more contagious than the last one, but BA2 is even more contagious than Omicron. And in this last Omicron wave, about half of Americans are estimated to have contracted it. And what that says to me is that the price to keep on trying to avoid COVID-19 is extremely high. Now, some people are willing to pay that price, but I think the vast majority of Americans are not willing to pay it anymore. So I wonder if you were surprised by the amount of pushback that you did get from the opinion piece that you wrote about the Gridiron Club dinner, Um, you know, particularly from people in the public health world. For example, Dr. Ushay Blackstock tweeted that we should expect event organizers to put public health measures in place to keep everyone safe, that it's unacceptable to put the onus on individuals, you know, and others, you know, others have had maybe some more colorful pushback. How do you respond to those kinds of criticisms? Adam, I would say, first of all, that Twitter is not the real world. (laughs) Really? You all know, and and I know very well, too. Um, I mean, I, I, I think you're absolutely right that there is a lot of pushback on Twitter, but that is not what I see in reality, which is where I live. I mean, I was just in clinic today speaking to my patients, speaking to my colleagues in healthcare, where... People have returned, by and large, to the real world. I actually would wonder if these same people posting on Twitter, I'm not talking about any one individual, but just in general, have they also returned to aspects of pre-pandemic normal? I mean, if they're going to indoor restaurants, if they're also gathering with their loved ones, which I think is a very natural thing to do at this point then they're also taking some level of risk. And look, I don't judge them. I don't judge people for the risks that they're taking because I think we all have a different calculus of risk. And what I wrote in the piece too is that organizers can do things to increase the level of of safety. So for example, if you require proof of vaccination, if you require and even offer same-day rapid testing, that definitely makes it safer than an event that does not have um, those precautions. Or if you have a more well-ventilated space, if it's outdoors versus indoors, better distancing. I mean, there are ways to make events safer. But I also think the answer here, or the question rather to ask, isn't so much, what is my risk of contracting COVID in this event? 
which I think for a lot of people is going to be hard to calculate because how many people do you think will attend and where are they coming from in the country? Are there are there hotspots? I think that's a different that's a difficult one to calculate. I think the better question to ask is, how much do I want to keep on avoiding COVID? And I'm not saying that I'm not trying to be cavalier and say that COVID isn't real or that long COVID isn't real or that there aren't consequences to getting COVID. What I'm saying is, if it looks like all of us are going to contract COVID in the near future, if we have not already, what are you willing to give up in order to keep on avoiding it? Are you willing to take on this risk, knowing that if you attend any indoor gatherings without masks, there will be a risk of contracting COVID? Yeah, I guess my question about that is sort of like, I feel like the people who are still being really cautious and like I'm kind of in that category and I'm actually in a space where I'm like is this reasonable I'm not sure it is but like there's a feeling of like we thought it was gonna end we thought that at some point we we wouldn't need to make those risk calculations every time we went out in public you know what I mean and I'm not you know severely immunocompromised I am six months pregnant but I'm not you know, I don't have something that makes the vaccines not have worked as well for me. So even th those folks are in an even different situation. But like, it almost feels like by saying, okay, well, Omicron showed us it just got worse in terms of the, you know, infectiousness. Is it essentially just saying we have to learn to live with it because it's not actually going to get better? Are we not going to get a to a place where the risk is actually lower for everyone? Well, first of all, congratulations on your pregnancy. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I'm very excited for I you. We're, maybe we're breaking some more news. I know. Here. That was like my pregnancy announcement <laughs> yeah. to the we, world. We broke so. yeah, two, two breaking news. Twitter's <laughs> not real and Meg is having another baby. <laughs> right. Um, you know, I actually, Meg, if I can, uh, I'll answer your, your question and, and actually also address um, the issue of children, which I know that you and I have talked a, a lot about before in terms of um being, having little kids who are not yet who are not yet able to be vaccinated, um, you know, I I think that um, I've been asking this question on over Twitter, um, and unfortunately have not really received what I think are are necessarily good faith answers. I'm not a snarky person, and so wasn't trying to be snarky, and certainly did not really want these snarky answers in return. But I was asking a genuine question, which is, what is it going to take? for people to start living their lives. As in, I really want to know, right? I want to know for people who are saying, it's not time to remove mask mandates, it's not time to go to large events, I wanna know what is that endpoint for them? And the types of answers that I got were things that were like, we need to vaccinate the world, we need to improve ventilation in all indoor settings. We have to have a cure for long haul COVID. We have to have universal health care, ideally single payer health care and paid leave for everyone. I mean, I think all of these things are really good goals to aim for. But if that's the end point, we are basically they're saying we have to mask in perpetuity or avoid gatherings in perpetuity. And I just don't think that that is the real world. And so I guess part of this is my recognition, Meg, that we have to live with COVID, that this is the new reality. We have tools to be able to deal with it, but it's not as if COVID is going to recede anytime in the near future. And we have to set our own endpoint for ourselves. I will tell you that my endpoint, if you will, changed really dramatically in December. I would say prior to Omicron, even around Thanksgiving, I was being extremely cautious. I have two little kids under the age of five, but two things happened. 
One is Omicron happened. It was so contagious, very, very difficult to avoid. And again, I'm quite convinced that everybody is going to get BA2 if they have not gotten Omicron in the near future. And the other thing that happened was I saw the news that Meg, you and Adam and Damien, you all reported very well that um, that the vaccine for younger children was really nowhere on the horizon. And even if one were to come out and hopefully we'll get news that one comes out soon, it's not going to be that effective. And so the so my husband and I discussed this and basically decided, what are we waiting for? We were very excited when our son's preschool then said that masks were becoming optional. Um, we started enrolling our, our four-year-old in, in camp, um, including in doing a lot more indoor activities. We ourselves started to engage in many more social activities because for us, we are not willing to pay the price anymore to keep on avoiding COVID. Now, I know some other people will feel differently. I would certainly advise my immunocompromised patients to continue being careful. I think those who take additional risks, including me, when we see individuals who are more vulnerable, we will take additional precautions. For example, um, we are celebrating Seder with some good friends of ours um, this weekend who are older with chronic medical issues. And we are going to be reducing our risk for three days prior um, and then taking a rapid test right before we go. I mean, those are the kinds of precautions we can still be taking to protect people around us while we live our lives. No, it's a really interesting point. You know, as you mentioned, we each have a risk calculation to approximate in our minds and to decide what we're willing to give up um, in exchange for you know the conceivable marginal protections that that those precautions might take. But then when you so zoom out from the individual level, then you have the issue that policymakers face where they're dealing with like the societal risks and what the marginal securities that can be gained by different policies can be. And so I was curious, you know, this week, the CDC extended its requirement for masking on public transportation, including on planes for another two weeks as it assesses the latest uptick in cases. What do you think about, I mean, how do you look at like, you know, potential off ramps on a policy level for something like that or for other policies that are similarly guided? It's really hard. I can understand why the CDC has extended the mask mandate for an additional 15 days. I think their rationale is solid that they want to see what happens with BA2. Already it's 80 some percent of the um, of the variants in the US. There is there appears to be a slight uptick, but not very much. I think giving another couple of weeks to see what ends up happening. Is it true that our hospitals are not going to be strained this time compared to previous waves? I think is is reasonable. I also think it's reasonable to ask for an off-ramp. I mean, what happens after two weeks? If the cases start decreasing, is that when the when when the off-ramp is? I mean, I, I think that there is a group of people who really want masks in perpetuity. And the Biden administration and the CDC need to say to these individuals that that's just not realistic here in the U.S. We don't come from a mask wearing culture. Changing that kind of culture norm is not going to happen. I mean, masks and vaccines and so many other precautions have become so politicized, so inserted in the middle of this ideological culture wars. To one side, it's seen as about control. To the other side, it's seen to be about respect. And we've lost sight of what they're actually here for, which is public health. I mean, I would really like to understand what is the impact of mask mandates? And I don't mean before. Before, when we had nothing else, when all we had back in 2020 were masks and distancing, masks were really needed. So I'm certainly not in the camp of saying, oh, we never should have had restrictions. 
Also, we're now in the time of Omicron. That's extremely contagious. I mean, I really want to know mask mandates that are just that even allow for a simple cloth mask. Is it really doing much? And so to your point, Damien, what is the marginal benefit? Is it are we talking about reducing cases by one percent or 50 percent of having mask mandates? I mean, I don't know, but I think those are the types of calculations that have to factor in because and I wrote my latest piece in the post about how I don't think that the um, that the mask mandate should have come back in Philadelphia. And I don't think that other cities or states should be re-implementing them at this point because I am really worried that about crying wolf. I'm worried that if um, something that really should be saved as a last resort and used in a time of true public health crisis, which is a government imposed mandate, if it's being used when it's not actually an emergency, then in the future, if there's a new really worrisome variant that's really deadly and that spreads more easily and that evades prior protection, And people are saying, well, I don't believe you at that point because you told me I needed to put a mask on before and I didn't need one. Why should I believe you now? I really worry about that. So I don't want this entire podcast interview to be Dr. Wen responds to critics. But I do I do want to ask you just about, you know, I guess some people will point to or people have pointed out that, you know, our policies need to protect the the most vulnerable people in our society with COVID. Maybe that's people who are immunocompromised. uh, what what's your what's your feeling about that? I mean, and, you know, in relation to like it's sort of everyone else who you know, who is not immunocompromised. I think they are right that we have to do much more to protect people who are immunocompromised. By the way, those people who are immunocompromised are also my loved ones. They're also my patients. Those individuals are also trying to move on with their lives and, in fact, are already moving on with their lives. Our job is to make it as safe as possible for them, too. And again, we have a lot more tools. And I think what we should be aiming for is getting those tools out there. For example, Evusheld, the preventive antibody that reduces the likelihood of severe illness by 90%. We should be talking about Evusheld for immunocompromised individuals and scaling it up so that everyone who's immunocompromised can get access to it at all times. We should be really um, getting treatment uh, treatments out there and telling people that if they are at risk for severe illness, that they need to understand their own treatment plan. This is what I've been trying to tell all my patients and really everyone, I've been writing about this, that before there's even a chance of you getting infected, know your treatment plan. Um, Are you eligible for for Paxlovid? Are you taking medications that might preclude you from getting it? Can you get monoclonal antibodies? What about remdesivir? What if you you start having symptoms on a Friday evening? Where where are you going to go get tested? Do you know your local pharmacy? Is your doctor on call or is there a local on-call number or urgent care clinic where you can call to get these medications quickly? Have a plan for getting those treatments. And then also, I think if you speak to people who are immunocompromised, as I do, who are my patients, they're not saying the rest of my family should not move on. Nobody else in my family should have a wedding in order to protect me. What they're asking is, how can I attend that wedding safely? Or even if I cannot attend that wedding, how can I still see others safely? And so I think the plain, I, I don't think it's reasonable to say everybody else should not be living their lives because frankly, that is not what immunocompromised people or vulnerable people in the real world are saying either. Everybody wants to move on. We have the tools to allow everyone actually 
to be able to enjoy their lives. I mean, individuals who are immunocompromised, what I would say to them too, in order to have safe gatherings, if people are coming to you, make sure that they are tested that, that same day. Ideally, they're also quarantining, reducing their risk for three days prior. If you want to go to an event, one-way masking works really well. Wear an N95, K95, or KF94 mask to these crowded settings. If you're invited to a wedding that you really want to go to, as one of my patients is, you could consider going to the to the ceremony itself. In this case, it's outdoors. Um, if you really, you know, if you want to be extra careful, wear your N95 during that ceremony. Don't stay for the reception where you might feel compelled to take off your mask or it's in a not well-ventilated space. I mean, immunocompromised people want to live too. People with chronic medical conditions want to get on with their lives too. So let's not pretend that somehow there is this large cohort of people who want to stay restricted. That's really not reality. This all sounds like really great. Like it would be so wonderful if people could figure out how to access these medicines. We've just seen the system is just not working. Like even for really sophisticated people who are connected to healthcare, it's like really difficult to get these drugs. I mean, how do you just think about the balance of people who don't have primary care physicians access to healthcare in the same way, who might not be as savvy at navigating how to find these things, how to make sure that these tools are getting to them so that, you know, they really are protected, you know, in a, because we think about, I think a lot of people frame sort of pushback to this idea as like, well, the individual is is okay and and people who are sort of more privileged are okay but other people aren't and i don't know i'm not asking the question well but like how do you respond to that i would say this is the same with any issue in healthcare and it's a problem throughout right that we have to do so much more when it comes to health equity to reducing disparities to healthcare access this is not unique to covid i mean covid shows and shines a light on these disparities in a way that maybe a lot of people have not seen before but name any issue cancer treatment orthopedic surgery i mean you know name literally any issue in healthcare and it's going to be the same that the people who are privileged are going to have access to the best care everybody else is going to be worried about what level of care they're going to get, how they'll access care. There are going to be barriers like transportation, taking time off from work. They may not have primary care. I mean, this is the same throughout. Now, I am not saying that this is justified or okay, but I'm also saying that that is not a reason to keep restrictions in place because these are systemic issues that will take everyone working together longer term. But there have to be shorter term actions that can be taken as well. And that's why I'm such a big proponent of, in the meantime, while we're working on these longer term issues and these systemic issues, we need to give people the tools that they need. And that means before you're ill, having this plan. Um, and I think that part is very important because people tend to not think about their health until a crisis has happened. But preparing for it in advance is really is is um, is key. And in the meantime, of course, I would very much urge Congress to um, to to provide the funding that the Biden administration really needs in order to supply the antivirals, to increase testing, to treat the uninsured, and all these other uh, all these other systemic issues too. That's a really interesting point, as you mentioned before you know, asking people earnestly what they thought would be the line of demarcation where they could kind of de-escalate uh, reaction to the pandemic and people saying things like global vaccination, universal health care, which I think you said are, are, you know, admirable goals to want to achieve, but maybe not totally reasonable in this context for, you know, removing a mask mandate, for instance. But I wondered kind of turning that 
statement around in the sort of cliche of never waste a good crisis. Do you think that we as a society have kind of let some of the immediacy of COVID go to waste when it comes to instituting policy changes or just changes in the way we do public health um, that maybe we might have had the ability to do while more of the country was focused on this pandemic, but maybe allowed to slip through our fingers now that we're two years deep into it? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, public health suffers from this cycle of panic and neglect, where during a crisis, everybody cares and everybody wants to fund all these things. And then as soon as the crisis subsides, nobody thinks about it anymore. And then the public health infrastructure gets more and more eroded. I mean, I wrote a book on this topic, as Meg mentioned. And so I'm certainly very sensitive to this issue and have seen for myself how um, local health departments, state health departments get depleted after every crisis. People leave, the workforce is is further, um, it loses the, the, the morale, they lose support, there's lack of funding. I mean, it's a major issue. I'd also say that there have been attempts to try to remedy the situation, but I don't know really what's happened. I mean, there was all this funding that came to, to, to locales and to states. But I think there needs to be an investigation on what's happened to that funding, because I don't know that a lot of the funding has actually gone to public health or in any sustainable way to public health. I also think that as a result of that, that fuels this narrative that no matter how much money you throw at the problem, nothing's going to get better. One more thing I'll add here is that we need to be intellectually honest also, as in I have also seen um, from individuals who are saying, I think, you know, rightfully, and I don't know if, Damien, if this was quite your point, but there's some people have been saying, well, if we let individuals believe that the crisis is over for them, that there's going to be less impetus to address congressional funding. I mean, some people have even said to me that my commentary is partly the reason why Congress is not funding um, the the emergency aid that's needed, which makes no sense because I've been writing comments. I've been commenting on the importance of public health infrastructure for many years. But in any case, I um, I reject this line of argument because I don't think it's fair to say to people there's still an existential danger when there is not for them individually. I don't think that's right, especially when we're seeing other data coming out that, for example, in 2020, there was a study coming out of the NIH that alcohol-related deaths increased by, I think it was more than 20% in that year. And for people under the age of 65, the number of people dying from alcohol-related deaths surpassed the number of people dying from COVID. Overdose deaths to opioids have skyrocketed. Youth mental health is a major crisis. People are missing out on their routine uh, childhood immunizations as well as cancer screenings. I think colonoscopies, the uh, rate of colonoscopies has dropped uh, um, off of a cliff. I mean, good health is not just the absence of COVID. COVID, and to scare people into thinking that their risk is actually higher than it is makes them let go of other aspects of their physical and mental health in a way that's actually damaging to people. So I think we can do both things of saying that policymakers need to focus on this really significant crisis of funding public health. But we cannot be dishonest to individuals. We have to let them know what their real risk is and to encourage them once again to live with this disease because we have to. We talked about it a little bit, but, um, you know, long COVID, that's like, how do you view that risk, you know, I don't know, personally or, or for your patients or for your children? Just how, how do you think about, okay, infection doesn't come with absolutely no risk, even if you're not at high risk of hospitalization or death. So how do you sort of navigate that? You are so right, Meg. I, I get asked this question on Twitter and in the online sphere 
all the time. Although I will tell you that I have not yet had any patients ask me about it as a risk for themselves, which is again I think a difference between what we're seeing online versus what we're seeing in reality. But um, in any case. I absolutely believe that real that long COVID is real. I've had patients who are suffering long-term consequences six months, a year after. We need a lot more research into what long COVID actually even is because there's no clear definition. Is it shortness of breath and fatigue after two months? Would you consider that long COVID? Or are we really talking about disabling headaches and being unable to focus on work a year after? I mean, what is the definition here? I think there are so many unknowns about long COVID that it's very difficult to calculate the risk for any given person. And so if somebody says, well, how do I think about my risk of long COVID? I would actually ask them the question in a totally different way, which is, it is going to be really difficult to avoid COVID at all. Are you willing to give up a lot in order to avoid COVID? And long COVID comes with that. And so I think about long COVID the way that I think about COVID in the sense that you don't exactly know what is going to happen once you have it, but you do know what will happen if you don't let your kids go to camp or sleepovers um, or extracurriculars. You do know what happens when you are not traveling and not going to indoor events with others. I mean, I think that is maybe my way of thinking about it, that again, I really believe that all of us, unless we take really extraordinary steps are going to get COVID and therefore be at risk for long COVID. Whatever that risk is, we don't know exactly, but we are going to be at risk uh, for it. I accept that risk for myself. I accept that risk for my children the same way that I accept that when my two-year-old climbs onto a play gym and her brother is there, he may very well push her off of the play gym. Now, I <laughs> wish that that won't happen. I will do my best to make sure that doesn't happen, but that is a risk that I have to be able to tolerate. And I think of COVID in that same sense. Dr. Wen, this has been a fascinating discussion. We, we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it also. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and where you fall on the spectrum of living with COVID. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, even when we continue to talk about Biogen, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week.